You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. good to be together today. Amen? We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. We, uh, for those of you who may be visiting with us today, we just began this uh, sermon series in Nehemiah uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we're continuing it today. In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he hears about the broken down walls in, uh, and gates of the city of Jerusalem. And we find Nehemiah weeping and praying over the city of God. I was thinking this week that several hundred years after Nehemiah, that our Lord Jesus Christ would also weep over the city of Jerusalem and the spiritual brokenness as he laid down his life to redeem his people. And just as Nehemiah called God's people to rise and build with him, Jesus likewise calls his disciples to follow him and build his kingdom through the church. And so I'm thankful that in these ways, Nehemiah points us to see Jesus, uh, even all the way here in the Old Testament. And um, so I rejoice with that. Well, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, we see God's uh, providence Again, as Nehemiah receives permission and help to go to Jerusalem, uh, from uh, permission from the king to go there, and we pick up the story in verse 9. The night came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night uh, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us 
and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But then I replied to them, the good, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, thank you on this special weekend that we can gather for worship and turn our thoughts and our attention to you. And I pray that even now, that as we have worshiped you through singing and and praying this morning and reading your word, that, Lord, we would now worship you by being attentive to you, humbling ourselves, inviting you, asking you to speak to us your word and transform us to be more like your son, Jesus. I pray that you would use me today as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we have to keep in mind as we study the Old Testament and, and particularly any kind of story that we come to like this, the narrative Uh, like Nehemiah, we always need to remember that God is always the main character of the story. In fact, the central theme of this chapter, chapter 2, I think is is not Nehemiah's uh, fantastic visionary skills or his planning skills, but the theme of this chapter really is the sufficiency, the greatness of God. Nehemiah's great God, our God, is sufficient for all matters of life. Every need that you have, every obstacle that you encounter, every sin that you commit, every difficult path that you find yourself on, our God is sufficient. He is enough. He's enough. And he's he's not just a means to an end in your life. He is the end. He is the beginning. He is everything in between, and He is completely sufficient for the here and now and forevermore. That's how great our God is. So, the first question we should ask about the Bible is also the first thing we should ask about our circumstances. What does this passage teach me about God? Things may be falling apart around me. Things may look bleak and hopeless all around, but our God remains the same, and He is sufficient for these things. Notice how this story, Nehemiah communicates this. Notice back up in verse 4, where Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. You may want to take out a pencil and underscore uh, God of heaven there. And then look down in verse 20 at the end of the story, and notice again, he says, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Again, underscore that, mark that in some way, because you see that surrounding this story, this truth is like like bookends. Nehemiah's favorite term of God is the God of heaven, and he repeats it several times in these In these opening chapters and in here in chapter 2, they're like bookends to the story. What frames this story? What frames everything that happens? All of the actions of this story is the greatness of God. It's what theologians sometimes call the the transcendence of God. The transcendence. That our God is the God of heaven. He, He is... 
He is God of the universe. Our God transcends everything that you and I see. He transcends everything that we see and know. He is self-existent. He is creator of all things. He is sovereign over all things. The God Nehemiah prays to and the God you and I have gathered to worship this morning is the God of heaven. It's the one Jesus pointed us to when he says, taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, who, who is in heaven, the greatness of God. So don't miss this. The main character of this story, the main action that's being taken, taken place here, and, and really the main story, the main character of the story of our lives is our great God. The greatness of God all over life. But I want you to notice another set of bookends uh, in the story and another truth about God, not just his transcendence, but his eminence. Not just that God is far above all things, God of the universe, God of the heavens, but that a God who is also eminent, a God who is also near. Notice how Nehemiah describes this, verse 8, another verse you may want to mark. The king granted me what I ask, here's why, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Look, look down in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Our God that is, is not just uh, removed. He's not, he's not remote. He's not a distant deity. No, this God, our God, is near us. In fact, as Nehemiah says, he is upon us. He's involved in the affairs of life. He is involved in the affairs of your life and my life. And we see this truth all over this chapter. Just think about the story, some of which we've already talked about. Verse 4, how God hears Nehemiah's prayers. Verse 5, God is supplying Nehemiah's words to the king. He gives him the right words. Verse 8, he's working in the mind of a pagan king swaying his thoughts so that he will open this pathway for Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem. Verse 12, we're going to see that God instructs Nehemiah as to what to do. He's directing Nehemiah's thoughts and actions. Verse 8 and verse 18, God's gracious hand is all over what Nehemiah is doing. Verse 20, it is God who sustains him through all of these things. How remarkable is that, church? How wonderful is this? These two attributes of God, which we should never lose sight of, so prominent in this text, and hallelujah, so prominent in our own lives, that, that God's eternal transcendence, being the God of heaven, keeps us from being and approaching God in irreverent ways. But yet, at the same time, this God of heaven that we're talking about is is upon us. It keeps us from moving to despair because God has not left us alone. He is, he is with us. He is involved in our very lives. He has not left us to ourselves. There is both an eternal throne as well as a loving hand that is leading and guiding, shaping your life and mine. What a great God that we have. These are truths that we must keep in mind, church, 
as we look at the scriptures and we think about our lives, though we, we look at circumstances around us at times, it seems like thing is bleak, but we remember that our God is the God of heaven whose good hand is upon us, upon those who are in Jesus Christ. Our God is sufficient for all things that come our way. And so the driving theme of this story, I want you to see, it's bookend by these truths about God. The driving theme of this chapter, do not miss this, is that the Lord provides for His people so that they would be able to move through any challenge, any obstacle that is given to them so that they can do the Lord's work, kingdom work. God is sufficient for these things. That is the perspective that Nehemiah had when he rode into Jerusalem in the year 445 B.C. You understand that he comes riding in with a good hand of the God of heaven on his life. And that was important because of the great work that God wanted to do through him and in his people. Remember, it will be to this city, the city of Jerusalem, that Christ will come later on and offer his life as a ransom for many. And so Nehemiah comes weeping, prayerful, committed to act just as his Savior would some 400 years later. Notice how the sufficiency of God leads Nehemiah to respond and to act. And we think about how does the Lord equip and empower us for, for the task that he puts before us. First of all, notice this. God empowers his servant to plan carefully. To plan carefully. That's the first thing that we see, verse 12, uh, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, verse 12. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. What's happening here? Nehemiah is assessing, he's carefully planning. That was his first task when he came into Jerusalem. He had a few men. He went out on horseback. He's assessing the work that needs to be done. Though God had put on his heart these things, uh, this burden to, uh, to rebuild the walls and the gates, he had answered his prayers by overcoming all kinds of insurmountable ob obstacles to get to this point. It did not prevent Nehemiah from having to exercise thought and careful planning. It's doubtful that God had told Nehemiah exactly how to accomplish the task of rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah would have to lean on God, rely on his own judgment, trusting that God was in the decisions and in the details of what was being made. So think about this, knowing that God is sovereign, that He's transcendent and, and imminent and all of these things, that truth does not lead us to inaction, but it motivates us to act and live wisely. This uh, moonlight journey with some trusted friends is perhaps one of the most dramatic scenes in the story. You can picture them riding around under the cover of darkness going from gate to gate and inspecting these 
uh, walls, assessing uh, the challenges, uh, thinking about the dangers, the obstacles, um, the, the opportunities. He's uh, clearly, he's making plans. And the parts of the city, you notice, were in such a disarray, they couldn't even get through. He says, my animal can't even pass through here because it's so bad. It's a mess. And I remind you again, church, this was more than just about walls and gates. These, this is about the walls and gates of Jerusalem, the city of God. Listen to how the psalmist uh, describes this, the center of God pur- God's purposes in redemptive history. Uh, Psalm 87 says, On the holy mount stands the city that he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Do you understand that this was God's name, God's glory was at stake in this city? And so the task. Uh, We think about the task before us today. The task before us today, church, is not the city of God, but the kingdom of God, right? And and we're called to advance the kingdom of God through the work of the local church, through evangelism and discipleship. This is the task before us. Our objective is to glorify God by making disciples from the neighborhoods to the nations because we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the answer to the world's problems today. We want everyone to hear the gospel. We want everyone to have opportunity for the word of Christ. This is what God has put on the hearts of his people. After his resurrection, he said, I want you to go and to tell and to make disciples, to teach them all the things that I have commanded you. And church, this is a demanding enterprise. Think of the lostness. In our own city, in our world, the brokenness today that we look around and we see all around us. And and this is why this is so important, why this mission is worth our best effort. Church, everything that you see is going to pass away, but the work of the kingdom has enduring value for all of eternity. And so as we set our sights on proclaiming the greatness of our God we can be assured that God is sufficient for our work. Think of what he told Nehemiah, just as the good hand of God was upon him, Jesus promises us that I am with you always to the very end of the age. He said, you will be my witnesses uh, when, when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So he has given us this mission to go and to make disciples. And he promises that we will have both his unfailing presence and his unstoppable power working in us. There is nothing greater to give ourselves to than the building of the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing that we see. Nehemiah plans carefully as to how he's going to lead in doing this work. Notice, secondly, though, Nehemiah was a man who knew how to inspire action. Inspire action. So having surveyed and planned the work, now he calls the people uh, to action. Verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had, I had not yet told the Jews, the, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of who were to do the work. 
But then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Now come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. This was not only a demanding enterprise, but it was a cooperative venture, wasn't it? It was too much for one man or even a small group of people. Nehemiah calls the people together and inspires them to action. He tells them about the trouble that we're in. And again, it's not merely about broken down walls and gates. Notice he says it's about the derision, that we may no longer suffer derision. This was a disgrace. He says, the, the external condition of the city of Jerusalem was a reproach to God. And it was a matter of scorn and abuse among Jerusalem's pagan neighbors because in the sight of these broken down walls and gates, it had given the impression to people outside of the city Israel, that Israel's God must have abandoned them. How can God be the God of heaven when he's not even the God of Jerusalem? That was the attitude. That was the sentiment. There was disgrace with this. Here are God's people who are living without walls. There's nothing separating them from anybody coming in to take advantage of them. They're they're so mixed with pagan people to such a degree that there's not even a distinction to be made in their lives. Nobody can really tell who these people are, whose God they belong to. Their city was a reproach to God. And Nehemiah, God used Nehemiah to call them to faith and obedience. So notice how he inspires them to action. I want you to notice how he points them to the the greatness of God. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Notice this, he didn't share them pictures of nice walls that he thought they might be able to build. No, he pointed them to the greatness of our God. He called their attention. He just told them about the providential hand of God, of all that had transpired. It wasn't because Nehemiah was a skillful uh, persuader. It wasn't because maybe there was some influence at the queen whispering in the king's ear, or maybe because the king was more gracious than they thought that he was. No, all of this was because of the good and sovereign provider of the God of heaven. And the people said, let us rise up and build. That's an amazing statement too, because this kind of total response of the people may have been a greater miracle than God changing the king's heart. (laughs) What an incredible testimony of God's power. The response is overwhelming. They strengthened their hands for the good work, they said. I was thinking about this, the elephant in the room in our church at times has been, um, are we going to build a new church? I can't tell you how many times people have asked me that in the past few years since I've become the pastor. Both people in the church, but also people in the community have asked me uh, that. And my answer has always been this, I don't know. (laughs) A lot of time has passed since that uh, vision was brought to the church 
I was thinking this week in preparing this, there may come a time, and maybe even this year, that we put together a committee to look at the master plan of our church. And like Nehemiah, to prayerfully assess and reevaluate what God would have us to do. But here's what I don't want us to lose sight of in this. But what, what brings us together, church, what inspires our action is not a vision for a building, but the vision of the kingdom and glory of God. Amen. It must be this, to proclaim Christ to present everyone mature in Christ, as Colossians says. Perhaps that would require a new building at some point. Maybe it won't require. Maybe it will require renovation here. But this can't be what consumes and drives our church. Just as God wanted to do a work even bigger than rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, He wanted to renew and revive His people. And we see this in this story. He wanted them to recognize his greatness and his glory so that they would live for him. The rebuilding of the walls was a necessity. But you see, it was also an external reflection of the inward transformation that God was doing in their lives. And the same is true for us. I tell you, church, so much greater than anything we can build for God is what God wants to do in and through us, his people reshaping our lives to be disciples, retooling and equipping us to be disciples who make disciples, reprioritizing our lives toward prayer and towards acting as the people of God should act. That's the work God wants to do. Well, third, I want you to notice a word of encouragement and caution God empowers his servant to handle opposition. And we know this to be true, I think, of our lives, that Satan, one way or another, always resists God's work. And so Nehemiah encounters it first thing, doesn't he? He encountered it in verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? They didn't even know the plan to rebuild. They didn't know Nehemiah's intentions, but they were displeased that someone would be concerned about God's people. That's what they were upset about. It seems to be in part why Nehemiah goes out at night to assess and why he didn't share his plans with very many people because there were enemies already waiting to thwart the plan. In verse 19, we see that their numbers are increasing. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and now we've got a guy named Geshem, the Arab who hears of it, it says, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now look at the content very carefully of what they say here. They are insinuating that pursuing the kingdom of God could be perceived as rebellion against earthly kingdoms and powers. That's a word of application 
for us today that I would draw your attention to because for a long time, I think Christians in the United States have lived in a culture that at least on the surface has valued Christianity. But more and more, you understand we're living in a culture that does not value Christianity. And in fact, we're living in times where that culture will interpret faithfulness to God and Christ as rebellion against the governing authorities. You need to be prepared for that, Christian. When we set out to do kingdom work, it will almost always thrust us into the arena of conflict. The enemy is always on alert, ready to destroy anything, any undertaking that would seek to glorify God and to build his kingdom. Paul reminded the Corinthians of this, that just because a wide door for effective work has opened to me, there are many adversaries, he says. And we should not be ignorant of Satan's design Sometimes, let's, let's be honest though, we'll have to talk more about this, but sometimes we don't even need to blame Satan. There's enough sin in all of us to worry about. I heard about a little boy who spit on his sister, hit her with a broomstick, and called her a bad name. And his uh, mom said to him, Johnny, why did you do that? You shouldn't have done that. That was terrible. Johnny, the devil must have made you do it. And little Johnny says, well, he said, the devil made me call her a bad name and hit her with a broomstick, but the spitting was my idea, he said. <laughs> I think we probably would all be shocked to realize how much of sin is really our own idea. And in our cases, we try to plan. It, it will be so easy to become more concerned with preserving our own reputation our own opinion, our own legacy, rather than the glory and mission of Jesus Christ. Church, this cannot be about ourselves. It's about Him. Amen? And yet we'll be tempted to make it about us. Notice how Nehemiah answers this, verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah says there, the God of heaven will make us prosper, that word prosper is an interesting and important word. It's a word that's used in both Psalm 1 and also Joshua chapter 1. Psalm 1 is about the, a man whose delight, you remember, who's in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night, right? And it says in Psalm 1-3, in all that he does, he prospers. That's the word. And then Joshua chapter 1, similarly, God reminds Joshua, he says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The way God empowers and equips His servants to handle opposition is by meditating and keeping His Word. 
It's not in your willpower. It's not in your strength, your own strength. It's in the Word. This reveals something very important for us today to think about. Very important. This shows us what Nehemiah fears. Please hear this. Greater than the fear of an earthly king, greater than the fear of these nasty insinuations of his opponent, Nehemiah fears God. It's the God of heaven that he serves and answers to. And as long as Nehemiah serves uh, and remains faithful to God and his word, then he would make them prosper and grant them success. Church, if, if we are letting God's word set the agenda for our lives and for our church, we will find all of the resources that we need for any and every challenge that we face. The sufficiency of God and his word is a powerful motivator. Nehemiah is a leader whose vision is filled with the greatness of God. And so no task is too difficult when the God of heaven is the one who is orchestrating it. A God who can turn the sea into dry land. A God who can cause a bush to burn without being consumed. A God who is not going to balk at Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem. We were taught as kids that little song, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's, I think I remember the actions. There's nothing my God cannot do. You remember that? That's good theology, not just for kids, but for adults. When God has a mind to do something, there is no stopping. Nothing can stand in his way. And church, we need to trust in him. For some of you, the greatest obstacle standing in your way this morning, you may not even have realized or thought of until this very moment, but is your sinfulness before God. The fact that you have yet to come to God for the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You may have come fearing a lot of things today, but I tell you, there's nothing more than you should be fearing than God if you're still in your sins. But let me tell you some good news. Our God is so big that He can cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He can forgive you of your sins because... Jesus paid for them on the cross. But you must repent. You must turn. You must bow your life before this God of heaven. You must believe in his son, Jesus Christ. His grace is sufficient to cover all of your sins. But will you repent and turn to him today in faith? Heavenly Father, thank you for this great story in Nehemiah, which once again reminds us of your 
your greatness, your transcendence, your eminence, your hand which is upon us. We thank you today that nothing is too hard for you. We thank you that you are sufficient for all things. You are even sufficient, Lord, for our sins, which are many. Oh, Lord, please work in our hearts to bring these eternal truths to reality, to bring them to bear in our own hearts and lives. And may we trust you as the great God and Savior that you are. Be with us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning. If you need to make a public commitment to Christ, I invite you to come. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.